Verse 7, Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, intoxicating all the earth. The nations have drunk of her wine. Therefore, the nations are going mad. Keep your finger there and turn over to Revelation 17. While you're turning, listen again to verse 7. Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, intoxicating all the earth. The nations have drunk of her wine. The nations are going mad. Revelation 17, verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth have been made, were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Notice the similarity of the language. Verse 3, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Who is that? What is that? Got to listen to the Revelation series online, you can find out. Full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns, the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand, note this, a gold cup, full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth, or probably a better translation, what's written upon her is Mystery Babylon. Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Revelation 17 speaks of what we call Mystery Babylon. What is that? It's the age-old, idolatrous, pagan, religious system that began with Nimrod in Babylon. Nimrod was not only a mighty hunter against the Lord, Nimrod was the first to introduce idolatry into the world. He was the one who founded that, who seeded it, so that by the time Israel was taken into captivity in Babylon, Babylon was the world center of idolatry. And so it traces all the way back to this guy. Mystery Babylon, the intoxicating cup, Go back now to Jeremiah 51, verse 7. Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord intoxicating all the earth. What does that mean? It means God had control. It means God was allowing what was going on, but He had control of it. Well, that's weird. No, He's God. (laughs) Sovereign. But this cup of intoxication, listen, the intoxicating cup is a phony, feel-good, humanistic, coexistent, one-world religion. At the end of days. And it's the, it's the one thing more than anything else that we want to not be. I, I don't know if I mentioned this Sunday, but I had a long talk with um, a friend of, of my son Corey's. Really good guy, really funny guy. I like him a lot. Just doesn't believe. Just can't believe. And he and Corey, over the last several months, have had numerous conversations and they would talk late into the night, and then finally Corey would <laughs> end up with a classic phrase. He'd say, well, I think you're just going to have to ask my dad about that. <laughs> and so he did. He was over at our house this last weekend. We sat down, and, and I said, okay, so ask me, what? And he started laying out all the stuff and many of the things that you've probably heard about why you shouldn't believe in God, and how could God this, and why God that? What about the Bible this, and what about the Bible that? And we had this fascinating kind of ongoing conversation, and at one point I said, I said, Dude, I'll just say dude, I don't want to say his name. I said, dude, you understand, I don't like religion. 
I just don't like religion. That's not what I'm about here. That's not what we're talking about is religion. And he goes, wow, I can talk to anybody who doesn't like religion. And he was real happy about that. And you know what? We are not a religion. We are people in relationship with God. We are people who belong to Jesus Christ. We are not about religious laws and checklists and all of that. We're following Jesus. We're following His Word. And we know He's cleansed us by His grace. And then the things that we do, the right things we do, we do because of Him, because of His power in our lives, not religion. The Bible talks about, Revelation teaches that in the end days, in the last times, in the tribulation, there will be a one world church. And it's going to be a conglomeration, I believe, of of all kinds of feel-good stuff. Universalism. Every aspect. You want to believe that? That's fine. You just As long as you bow to Antichrist and the beast, you can believe whatever you want. There's all kinds of freedom in the one world religion. But it's a religion that kills. It's a religion that binds up. It's a religion that intoxicates because it feeds the pleasure center of man, of our humanistic desires and wants and lusts. And God has no use for religion. What he does have use for is that you walk with Jesus. That's what he wants. That's what he desires of all of us. Let's walk together. Well, verse 8, going on, Jeremiah 51. Suddenly Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail over her. Bring balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. (laughs) We applied healing to Babylon, but she was not healed. Forsake her and let us each go to his own country, for her judgment has reached to heaven and towers up to the very skies. Okay, so an allusion back to the Tower of Babel, right? But also an allusion to Revelation chapter 18, verse 5, which says, Her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Verse 10. The Lord has brought about our vindication. Come and let us recount in Zion the work of the Lord our God. Sharpen the arrows, fill the quivers. The Lord has aroused the spirit of the kings of the Medes. And of course the Medes and the Persians were the ones who took out Babylon in 539. Because His purpose is against Babylon to destroy it. For it is the vengeance of the Lord... Vengeance for his temple. Now stop right there. Someone might say, all right, but verse 11, I read that. And it says, he roused the spirit of the kings of the Medes. And we know the Medes attacked Babylon. And, and so, doesn't that mean that this was fulfilled at that time? And vengeance for his temple. Well, this temple that Babylon destroyed. So isn't that, isn't that the picture here? Again, what happened historically doesn't go to the full extent. Yes, some of this happened. Why does God do that? Why does He prophesy something and some of it seems to be partially fulfilled but it's bigger than what actually happened? It's the same reason why Jesus referred to the abomination of desolation. Jesus says, when you see, future tense, the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, flee. But the Jewish people who heard Him say that knew that in, what was it, 186 B.C.? That Antiochus Epiphanes had done that very thing, had brought about an abomination of desolation in the temple, setting up an idol to the god Jupiter. And Jesus says, when you see it, when this happens in the future, and some Jews listening to it might say, but that happened in the past. Exactly. What happened in the past was an historical picture of a future prophetic event that will happen to greater and complete degree. That's what I think we're reading here. There are aspects of this that happened. 
But the big picture, the complete fulfillment, has yet to take place. Verse 12, lift up a signal against the walls of Babylon. Post a strong guard, station sentries, place men in ambush. For the Lord has both purposed and performed what He spoke concerning the inhabitants of Babylon. Well, that sounds past tense now. Yeah, that's how certain the fall of Babylon is. O you who dwell by many waters, that would be the Tigris, the Euphrates, the, um, the river Shabar that Ezekiel dwells by. Abundant in treasures, your end has come. The measure of your end, or in the colloquial, I'm cutting you off. I am cutting you off. The Lord of hosts has sworn by Himself, verse 14, sworn by Himself, that's a pretty serious swearing. When God says, I swear to God, it's going to happen, right? Surely I will fill you with a population like locusts, and they will cry out with shouts of victory over you. Again, didn't happen. Not like that. You crept in under the wall, took the city, and it was over. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding He stretched out the heavens. When He utters His voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and He causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and brings forth the wind from its storehouses. I love this. All mankind is stupid. (laughs) I have that highlighted in my Bible, just as a reminder to me. Okay, Devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his molten images are deceitful, and there's no breath in them. They're worthless. A work of mockery. In the time of their punishment they will perish. The portion of Jacob is not like these. For the maker of all is he, and the tribe of his inheritance, the Lord of hosts, is his name. Verses 15 through 19 here is an exact repeat of Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 11 and 16. 11 through 16. Jeremiah takes those words and now inspired by the Spirit speaks them once again. So they're spoken twice in the book of Jeremiah. So there's some great significance here. But let me ask you this. Does it offend you at all that the Word of God calls us stupid? No? Good. Good. (laughs) Proverbs 30 verse 2 says, Surely I'm more stupid than any man. And I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom. Nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Any answers to that question? Jesus Christ. Who has gathered the wind in His fists? Again, answer to that question? Jesus Christ. When did Jesus do that? When He called the storm. He gathered the wind in His hand. He said, hush, be still. They were done. Glass. Who has wrapped the waters in His garment? Jesus. Who has established all the ends of the earth? Well, wait, that's kind of big. Didn't Jesus come around, you know, like around B.C.? Zero, one, five, somewhere in there? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And the Word has become flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Okay, Jesus. I love this. And this is also still from Proverbs. What is His name? Or his son's name? Surely you know. Yes, I do. He is Yahweh. His son is Yeshua. And the only true smarts, the only intelligence, the only wisdom that is truly ours on the planet is that which is found in Christ Jesus. That's wisdom. 
Colossians 2.3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If there's any knowledge, it comes from Christ. If there's any smart atheist on the planet, it's only because Jesus is beneficent enough to allow him a tad of knowledge. But unfortunately, that kind of knowledge without belief in Christ only puffs up and brings about pride and downfall. Babylon's problem. Verse, uh, where are we? 20. He says, You are my war club, my weapon of war, and with you I shatter nations. And with you I will destroy kingdoms. With you I shatter the horse and his rider. With you I shatter the chariot and its rider. With you I shatter man and woman. With you I shatter old man and youth. With you I shatter young man and virgin. With you I shatter the shepherd and his flock. With you I shatter the farmer and his team. With you I shatter governors and prefects. The word shatter there is nafatz in the Hebrew. Nafatz means literally to dash into pieces. And it's a specific answer to a specific prayer. What are you talking about? Psalm 137, you can turn there real fast or I'll just read it to you. Psalm 137, verse 1, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows, in the midst of it, we hung our hearts. For there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. See, as Babylon was rejoicing over Judah's fall. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, here comes the prayer against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem. The Edomites, I mentioned a few minutes ago, there's a similar prophecy for the Edomites that was upon Babylon. It's because the Edomites aligned themselves with Babylon and came storming in in the destruction of Jerusalem. And here again, this prayer is against Edom and against Babylon. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it! Raise it to its very foundation! O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one, how blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. And blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Now, if if I read that in some public circles today, they might consider that to be child abuse. It's an interesting prayer. But it's a prayer that receives its fulfillment in the fall, the ultimate fall of Babylon, as he says, shatter, 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 nafats. Every one of these shatters, verses 20 through 23, is that word nafats, dash into pieces. Dash into pieces. He says it again and again. Now it may seem harsh. We talked about this when we studied the book of Psalms. A harsh prayer, dash the little ones upon the rock? That that, that just seems very difficult. Then we can say, yeah, but it came from the place of great heartache. So to justify perhaps a Jewish person sitting by the river of Babylon and weeping and saying, Lord, dash their little ones into pieces because they're remembering their children who were dashed on the rocks. Because they have that horrible, brutal visual of their own children being killed in such a, a terrible manner. 
So you might cut them a little slack. But yet the Lord returns to it here, talking about this this shattering, talking about dashing into pieces. And, And you might say, okay, so even if they prayed it in pain, God answered it. God did this. Isn't this judgment too severe? There's something we need to be reminded of here. And a spiritual application. Little Babylonians become big Babylonians. Why would you dash the little ones on the rock? Because the little ones will grow up to be the soldiers of Babylon, brutal and vicious. Spiritually speaking, we have got to do away with the little ones of the enemy. We've got to kill the little Babylonians in our lives. We need to dash them on the rocks. What are you talking about? James says each one is tempted, James 1.14, when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Lust gives birth to sin. Cute little sin, you know. He's just a cute little sin. He's harmless, you know. Little jokes, little movies, little desires, little liaisons, little sins. No one knows about. But the little sins grow up to be big sins. Like little Babylonians growing up to be big Babylonians. And part of the problem of sin for many of us, even in the church today, and why sin still claims certain areas of our lives, is our repentance doesn't go far enough. We don't kill the sin dead. We just sweep it under the carpet. We just try to ignore it for a while. We just pretend that it's not that big a deal. And so we don't confess it to a brother or sister who can hold us accountable. We don't bring it before the Lord in prayer and true repentance. We don't cut out of our lives the opportunity to, com- to commit such sins. We just keep the little Babylonians around because they're cute. Dash them on the rocks because the little Babylonians become big ones. Jesus said to the Pharisees, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And that's why I say, Lord, judge me now. Judge my life for salvation at the cross by my faith in Jesus. But judge my life right now based on the little Babylonians running around my life, running around my heart, messing me up. Lord, bring those to light that I can repent and truly repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What does that mean? It means I'm not doing the sin anymore. Well, how can we just not sin anymore? God will give you the power if you will ask Him for the help. You believe that? I believe that any sin in our lives can be conquered by the Spirit of God working in us if we will bring it to Him. But if we try to nurture and play with and toy with the little Babylonians, it'll stay. And it'll grow. And it will get bigger and bigger until it takes us out. Verse 24. I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all their evil that they have done in Zion before your eyes, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, who destroys the whole earth, declares the Lord. And I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags so I will make you a burnt out mountain. Side note, when we get to Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Dream of a great statue. 
And this great statue representative, part of it, of himself and the following nations, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a great stone, not cut out by human hands, comes flying through the heavens, smashes the statue, it comes to pieces, and that stone becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. That stone is the, is the kingdom of God. Nebuchadnezzar's mountain is a burnt out mountain. They will not take from you even a stone for a corner, nor a stone for foundations, for you will be desolate forever. I would underline that. There are those who say, oh, that's just big poetic language to say, we're going to take you down. No, it's desolate forever. And I believe absolutely in the millennial kingdom during that thousand year reign of Christ, there will be no habitation in Babylon. There will be a spot on planet earth where nothing grows, where nothing lives, and where no one goes. Lift up a signal in the land, blow a trumpet among the nations, consecrate the nations against her, summon against her the kingdoms of Ararat, Mini, that's not Mouse, and Ashkenaz. These three are warrior people that lived in the region that today is Iran. Appoint a marshal against her, bring up the horses like bristly locusts. Consecrate the nations against her, the kings of the Medes, their governors and all their prefects, and every land of their dominion. Uh, Verse 29, So the land quakes and writhes for the purposes of the Lord against Babylon's stand, to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitant. The mighty men of Babylon have ceased fighting. They stay in the strongholds. Their strength is exhausted. They are becoming like women. No offense, girls. Their dwelling places are set on fire. The bars of her gates are broken. One courier runs to meet another, and one messenger to meet another. They tell the king of Babylon that his city has been captured from end to end. The fords also have been seized, and they have been burned. They have burned the marshes with fire, and the men are terrified. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor. At the time it is stamped firm, Yet in a little while, the time of her harvest will come for her. And by the way, that's not a good harvest. Babylon will be reaped of all her powers, reaped of her possessions, reaped of her world influence, wiped out. The harvest is the takedown of Babylon, leaving the fields bare. Now, in interesting poetry, the Spirit gives voice to the city of Jerusalem. Verse 34 Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured me and crushed me. He has set me down like an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a monster. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has washed me away. As it were, Jerusalem itself speaking. May the violence done to me and to my flesh be upon Babylon. The inhabitant of Zion will say, May may my blood be upon the inhabitants of Chaldea, Jerusalem, will say. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am going to plead your case and exact, note this, full vengeance for you, and I will dry up her sea and make her fountain dry. The word sea there, yam, also means a body of water. It could mean a broad river. He's talking about the Euphrates. I'm going to dry up the Euphrates. The Euphrates. As we noted earlier, Cyrus diverted the river, but he didn't dry it up. He just diverted it so it was low enough that his men could walk through in the channels. 
That's something that is going to happen at the end of the tribulation. Revelation 16, verse 12. Note this. The sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates. And its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings of the east to march straight across as they come in conflict with Antichrist. The end of the tribulation. 200 million man army, John describes, coming from the east against Antichrist and Babylon. Verse 37, Babylon will become a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, an object of horror and hissing without inhabitants. You get in the picture here of the massive destruction? (laughs) Part of the reason I'm moving quickly through it is there's a lot of repetition of God just saying it's going to be complete and full and absolute. Verse 38, they will roar together like young lions. They will growl like lions' cubs. When they become heated up, I will serve them their banquet and make them drunk that they may become jubilant and may sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake up, declares the Lord. And that is a reference to Belshazzar and the feast that was taking place in the palace of Babylon when Cyrus and his men came in and took the city. So again, an historical connection here but a longer connection of the sleep of a perpetual sleep and the destruction that takes place. Verse 40, I will bring them down like lambs to the slaughter, like rams together with male goats. How Shishak has been captured and the praise of the whole earth has been seized. How Babylon has become an object of horror among the nations. Shishak, you know who Shishak is? It's those weird creatures in that old show, The Land of the Lost, the Shishaks. Oh, Sleestacks, right. No, Shishak here is is kind of a a cryptic name for Babylon. It's used another time by Jeremiah. Um, Your notes probably say Jeremiah 25-26. It was used before. Shishak, but it means something. Thy fine linen. Thy fine linen. That's really interesting. Fine linen in the Bible is a picture of what, Bible students? Righteousness. Righteousness. Fine linen. There's there's a great human Babylonian misconception about righteousness, about what is good, and about what identifies righteousness, righteous works. The wealthy young man called out to Jesus, Good teacher! What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Mark 18, 10-18, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Thus inferring that He was God. Good teacher. Righteous person. I'm righteous. I'm good. Revelation 19, verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. Shishak is the word in the Hebrew here. Fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That messed me up for a long, long time. The righteous acts of the saints. So we're going to wear our righteousness. But Isaiah tells me my righteousness is like filthy rags. I don't want to wear filthy rags to the wedding. But I'm not. I'm wearing fine linen, bright and clean. Note the operative phrase here. Revelation 19, verse 8 begins, It was given to her. What's the implication? True righteousness is only that which God does through us. Not that which we perform ourselves. 
Those who would say, you got to work for your salvation, works-based righteousness, are wearing the Shishak of Babylon. You see, Babylon's Shishak, God calls her fine linen, how your fine linen has been captured. All of your greatness, all of your grandeur, all of your works, Babylon, is done. It's captured. It's history. It's toast. And that's going to happen to every single person who stands before God and says, look at my good works. Looks like Shishak. Or would you rather wear the fine linen, bright and clean, that is given to you as the Lord works His righteousness through you? True righteousness flows by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The anointing that you all have and you all know, we talked about, when was it, two, three hours ago? The anointing you've been given, that blessing of the Spirit of Christ in your life, doing good works, doing righteous things. And all the more so as we just submit to the Lord to accomplish His good works in us. And then when He does, guess who gets the glory? Jesus does. Verse 42. The sea, again, the broad river, has come up over Babylon. She has been engulfed with its tumultuous waves. Her cities have become an object of horror, a parched land in a desert, a land in which no man lives and through which no son of man passes. This is specific, gang. I will punish Bel in Babylon, that idol, and I will make what he has swallowed come out of his mouth and the nations will no longer stream to him. Even the wall of Babylon has fallen down. Well, the wall of Babylon did not fall down in 539. Verse 45, Come forth from her midst, my people. And each of you, save yourselves from the fierce anger of the Lord. Revelation chapter 18, verse 4, the parallel passage. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. The angel says to those living in that region of Babylon in that time, Come out of Babylon, because Babylon's going down, just as was spoken here. Verse 46, Now, so that your heart does not grow faint, and you are not afraid when the report that will be heard in the land, for the report will come one year, and after that another report in another year, and violence will be in the land with ruler against ruler. Therefore, behold, days are coming when I will punish the idols of Babylon, and her whole land will be put to shame, and all her slain will fall in her midst. What's this idea of the report? What's he getting at? You know, even today there are always reports being made in the land. Every time we turn around, there's a report of some kind of terror that's happening in Israel. To the point that when we first took a trip as a church to Israel as a group, people were freaked out. Really? Should we go? I don't know. And I think that first group were were primarily the the, the wild bunch who were hoping something would happen while we were there. (laughs) You know? There's always reports about the land. And what God is saying here at this time is, you're going to hear reports. Don't be frightened. People are going to say things. Don't worry. Brothers and sisters, we are hearing daily news reports in America about how our country is turning against Christians. The recent one I read today, that Brian sent to me. He's always sending me reports. i got to tell Brian. The recent one today is crackdown in the military against proselytizing. So naval personnel, the crackdown from the Pentagon is coming down that you are not to talk about Jesus as you serve our country. Man, that, that stuff you hear going on in like Iran. You know, that stuff that goes on in pagan nations, not here. 
And we've talked a lot about this in Jeremiah. If I allowed myself to listen to all the reports, I would be one bummed out dude. I would be so depressed. I'd be like, God, what's the use? I am moving away to an island somewhere. I'm going to ask my wife to let down your hair. We're going to hang out there and just not do anything until Jesus comes because what's the use? Don't listen to the reports. They're going to keep coming. You're going to keep hearing them. But behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. And He is going to make all of this right. He is going to answer everything that is against Him. You just keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And don't let the reports be upsetting for you. Verse 48, Then heaven and earth and all that is in them will shout for joy over Babylon. We read that in Revelation 19. In fact, we will in just a second. For the destroyers will come to her from the north, declares the Lord. Indeed, Babylon is to fall for the slain of Israel, as also for Babylon the slain of all the earth have fallen. Revelation 18, verse 20, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Revelation 18, 24, In her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Again, the parallel is stunning here. Verse 50, You who have escaped the sword, depart. Do not stay. Remember the Lord from afar. Let Jerusalem come to your mind. Verse 51, watch this. We are ashamed because we've heard reproach. Disgrace has covered our faces, for aliens have entered the holy places of the Lord's house. What's happening here? Verse 50 and 51. It's interesting. There's there's a call that comes from the Lord. Come on home. Come on out of Babylon. And the response of the people, we're ashamed because we've heard of the reproach. Disgrace has covered our faces. Aliens have entered the holy places of the Lord. We can't go back to Judah. How can we go back there? After all that's been done, we're just going to stay right here in Babylon. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like the excuse of the Christian who's ashamed of the church. The Christian who says, I'm going to stay in Babylon because I'm ashamed of what's going on in the church. I'm not part of that. I believe in Jesus for my part, but I don't want to be involved with those church people. I'm not coming out of the world. There's too much reproach on the church anyway. It's embarrassing. I'm ashamed. And so I'm not going to come out. And I believe to that person, the Lord might say, let Jerusalem come to mind. What do you mean? He says to His people, let Jerusalem come to mind. You're in Babylon. I want you to think about Jerusalem. What did the psalmist say? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill, may my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. He says, remember Jerusalem. What about Jerusalem, Lord? The feasts. The celebration, the temple, the worship, the sacrifice that covered your sins. Think about it. Think about those wonderful days and come out of Babylon, says the Lord. You know what you do if you're having a problem with someone at church? Think about the good times of worship. Think about the sacrifice of Jesus, the blood that covers all of us. Think about all the good. A lot of stuff has been been bad. A lot of bad things have gone on in the last 2,000 years in the name of Christ and the church. But you know what? So much good has been done. So much grace has been poured out. Remember Jerusalem. Think about the good things that have gone on there. Verse 52. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish her idols, and the mortally wounded will groan 
throughout her land. Though Babylon should ascend to the heavens, again, a reference to the Tower of Babel, and though she should fortify her lofty stronghold, from me destroyers will come to her, declares the Lord, the sound of an outcry from Babylon and of great destruction from the land of the Chaldeans. For the Lord is going to destroy Babylon. He will make her loud noise vanish from her and their waves will roar like many waters. The tumult of their voices sounds forth. For the destroyer is coming against her, against Babylon, and her mighty men will be captured. Their bows are shattered. For the Lord is a God of recompense. He will fully repay. I will make her princes and her wise men drunk. Her governors, her prefects, her mighty men, that they may sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake up, declares the Lord whose name is the Lord of hosts or (laughs) Yahweh of armies. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the broad wall of Babylon will be completely raised, that is, flattened to the ground, and her high gates will be set on fire. Watch this. So the peoples will toil for nothing and the nations become exhausted for fire. It's the final picture of the abject waste of temporary living for the immediate pleasures and riches of this life, like Babylon, it's all going to burn. Now, the sinking of Babylon gets a real-life illustration at the end of this judgment. The prophecy came in 594 to 593 B.C., Uh, It's what is the fourth year of Zedekiah. So somewhere between 594 and 593, this next prophecy, the the last one. And Jeremiah sent on the whole prophecy that we've just read, the whole scroll that was written down, he sends it on with Baruch's brother to Babylon. Watch this story. Verse 59. The message which Jeremiah the prophet commanded Sarayah, the son of Neriah, the grandson of Machseah, when he went with Zedekiah to the king of Judah to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign, now Sarayah was quartermaster. So Jeremiah wrote in a single scroll all the calamity which would come upon Babylon. That is, all these words which have been written concerning Babylon. Everything we've studied tonight. Wrote it down in a scroll. And then Jeremiah said to Sarayah, As soon as you come to Babylon, then see that you read all these words aloud. And say, you, O Lord, have promised concerning this place to cut it off so that there will be nothing dwelling in it, whether man or beast, it will be a perpetual desolation. And as soon as you finish reading this scroll, you will tie a stone to it and throw it into the middle of the Euphrates. And say, just so shall Babylon sink down and not rise again because of the calamity that I'm going to bring upon her and they will become exhausted. And this is the final parallel that is a clincher for me. Sarayah did as he was told and somewhere at the bottom of the Euphrates there may still sit the stone unless it was washed on out to sea. But the stone that sank to the bottom to which this prophecy was bound. He read the scroll, wrapped it to the stone, and threw it into the Euphrates, and as it sunk, said, that's what's going to happen to Babylon. You are sinking to your demise. Why is that a clincher? Because I believe this action is a precursor to another event. Revelation 18, verse 21, Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. 
So what do you think? Is it live or is it Memorex? Is it prophecy past fulfilled or prophecy future yet to be completely fulfilled? As soon as all of this stuff takes place at the end of Revelation 18, as soon as mighty Babylon is raised to the ground, as soon as it happens, Revelation 19 kicks off with these words, after these things, metatauta in the Greek, after these things, it means after the fall of Babylon, immediately after, I heard something, John writes, like a loud voice of a great multitude saying in heaven, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality and He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And verse 64 ends, Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. Literally, the words of Jeremiah end here. You might look and say, well, okay, but there's another chapter right after this. Chapter 52 is an historical supplement. Chapter 52 doesn't contain the words of Jeremiah. In fact, chapter 52 is probably not even written by Jeremiah, but was set in, I believe by the Spirit of God, on purpose, but was set here at the end of Jeremiah's prophecies, the exact parallel, almost word for word, is 2 Kings 24, 18 through 25. 25 verse 30. So the end of 2 Kings, exactly the same as chapter 52 of Jeremiah. It's given in 2 Kings, given again at the end of Jeremiah. Why is that? Well, we'll talk about that either Sunday or next week. But here's a final thought for tonight. Whether you think this prophecy was fulfilled in 539, or as I believe will be fulfilled in the final destruction of a literal restored Babylon, there's a principle here that rises out of the smoke of this judgment. A principle for you, a principle for me, a principle for our nation, for the nations of the world. And I'll let the prophet Habakkuk, a contemporary of Jeremiah's, explain. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 13, he writes... Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? So much of our toil and work and efforts are for naught. They amount to so much fuel for the fire. That's how this prophecy ends before we're told about how it's thrown into into the sea. Her high gates will be set on fire. The peoples will toil for nothing and the nations become exhausted for fire. All the work. Think about all the effort. All the the sweat and the the tears and the difficulty that that people put into into business or, or life or success trying to build something that will last. And Habakkuk says in 2.14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So the question for you, the question for me is, are we toiling for fire? Is all of our achievements and all of our work, is it just the stuff of firewood? Or is it for the glory of the Lord? For the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. How much better to spend our lives for that single eternal purpose. Amen. Father, we bow before You. As we close out the prophecies of Jeremiah, and Lord, I I thank You for this difficult road. 
as I've said many times, Father, this has been a hard book for me. It's been heavy. And your hand has felt heavy on me at times. But, Lord, it's such a good thing. It's a good heaviness. Because, Father, I, I sense in this, in your desire for your people, I sense, Lord, the weight of your glory. And I pray our lives would be turned such that we would live for your glory. We would live for your honor. We would live for your praise. And in that, Holy Father, find the greatest joy and the greatest sense of fulfillment that a human can find. Praise you, Jesus. Come quickly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.